This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. I'll start off um, by talking a little bit about what, um, a little bit of background about what we do in donation. And everything we do in organ donation comes down from some fundamental ethical rules. And the main central rule is what we call the dead donor rule. And this rule uh, is an ethical norm that kind of establishes a groundwork for doing transplant. And the idea is to prevent harm, which is a central tenet of being a physician, um, to prevent harm to donors and build trust. And those are really the the key rationales for having this dead donor rule. And what the dead donor rule says is that organs um, or organ donors, sorry, must not be killed or die by um, taking a an organ from them. So um, that recovering an organ cannot be the thing that causes the donor to die. The rationale for that will become more apparent as we go um, go on. But that concept is is fundamental to understanding uh, some of the issues we'll talk about shortly. So for most of human history, the diagnosis of death, the ability to, to say someone has died, has relied entirely on the cessation of cardiopulmonary function the breath stopping and the heartbeat stopping. And that has been the mainstay uh, of how we diagnose, have always diagnosed death. But uh, that became more complicated after a day in 1967. This is Shergrood Hospital in South Africa, in Cape Town. And a physician there named Christian Bernard performed the first human-to-human heart transplant in 1967. Dr. Bernard is there on the left, and Victor Wyshkansky is on the right. He was the first heart recipient, and that's him a few days after his heart transplant. And this is the first heart donor. Darlene Darval was her name. It's funny, in today's world, we would never know the name of a donor. That would be kind of sacrosanct information that would be kept out of all public eyes, but... uh, In 1967, there weren't very many rules about these sorts of things. And this was on the front page of the newspaper the next day. All the donor information right up beside the information about the heart transplant. Ms. Darval died in an auto-pedestrian accident, was taken to Shoregrood Hospital. And although she was uh, severely brain injured, there was no diagnosis of brain death at the time. And so... She died or had to pass on just like any other patient by determining cardiopulmonary death. And so life support was withdrawn. Her breathing tube was removed. The medications that were helping keep her blood pressure up were turned off and her breathing stopped and her heart stopped. And then she was taken expeditiously to the operating room where her heart was removed and transplanted into Mr. Wyshkansky. And that was how the first heart transplant was performed. There are a couple of things about that process, and we'll walk through that time frame um, that are helpful to understand. So this is for donation after circulatory determination of death. First, 
You had to make a decision to transplant. Then you had to withdraw life support from the donor. The donor had to cardiac arrest. So over some period of time between removing the tube um, and the patient's heartbeat actually stopping and respiration ceasing, there would be a period of instability where the donor would be deteriorating. And then they would cardiac arrest. And there would be a standoff period where you would wait five minutes of observation to make sure that that was a final state. Then the donor would be taken to the operating room quickly, prepped, and a sternotomy would be performed in cannulation to flush all of the blood out of the organ and out of the heart and arrest the heart in a controlled fashion. This is all considered a warm ischemic period and a period of injury. And then there would be a flush. The heart would be cut out. It would be immersed in cold saline and transported to the recipient operating room and then sewn into the recipient. And this would be considered a cold ischemic injury because the heart would be kept cold throughout this whole period. So you'd have this 20 to 40 minute warm ischemic injury followed by a maybe 150 to 270 minute cold ischemic injury. And that would constitute sort of the impact or injury that the heart would take in the normal process of being transplanted. But the early outcomes from transplant weren't so amazing. <laughs> and uh, we had a, a lot of crash and burn uh, stories in that early transplant period. It was kind of the Wild West. This is a Life magazine cover from 1971 talking about the early pioneer recipients of heart transplants. And there was a, a famous photograph about nine months after they started doing heart transplantation in the United States. And it's a picture of these six patients sitting here uh, that are depicted on that left side of the image, um, all laughing and on stage, you know, talking about their transplant experiences. And then this magazine came out and just a year later, all six of those patients had died. And so this article put a pall over uh, heart transplantation in that early period. And on the right side of the panel, you can see there was an early spike in the number of centers across the world that were doing heart transplantation. So it went from one transplant in one country up to over 100 in that first year. So there was this huge explosion in people trying to do transplantation. However, in just two years, that came all the way back down to just you know less than 20 transplants being done a year. And the reason for that was the very high mortality in the early transplant period. Now, things got better after that, obviously, but that early period was, was pretty tough, and it really came down to just a few centers persevering uh, to push the field forward. This is Sir Peter Medawar, who was an early pioneer in transplant immunity and understanding the immunity uh, of transplantation. He made a famous comment that he felt transplantation would ultimately become a regular part of clinical practice. You didn't have to worry too much that people would give up on it, despite how tough things were looking in the early days. Uh, and his reason, rationale for that was that people would rather be alive than dead. And so people would keep trying. And I think he was held out to be correct. Uh, he also won the Nobel Prize in transplant for transplant immunity, Nobel uh, Prize for Medicine in transplant immunity. So 
there were really just a few centers that stuck it out. And these are really the, the main centers, Columbia University in New York, Shoregroot Hospital, Group Shore Hospital in Cape Town, Le Petit in Paris, and MCV in Virginia, and of course, Stanford here in California. Stanford was where Christian Bernard, the person that did the first heart transplant, was trained to do heart transplant because Stanford was gearing up quickly to be the first transplant center. Christian Bernard was part of that early uh, group at Stanford getting ready to do the first transplant, but then he went back home to South Africa and scooped his mentors there at Stanford. Lots of intrigue in the early days of transplant. But you can see on the right-hand side that in the first few years after transplant, the number of patients surviving after transplant continued to increase as the years went by. Patients did better and better and better as we made incremental improvements in what we were doing. Patients started to, to survive longer and longer. And this kind of talks about, you know, pretty early we had the surgical technique figured out. We had the ability to get the hearts out safely, to protect them, uh, and to sew them in in a way that that didn't injure any critical structures in the heart and um, provided a good geometric fit for the transplant. We had a little bit of immune modulation, but not great immune modulation. So that was still an area that was struggling. And we had not the best donor organ preservation. And so these were some of the reasons that the early transplants really struggled uh, is because we didn't have all the elements we needed uh, to successfully perform transplantation ironed out. About that time, a group at Harvard Medical School um, in response to a new technology, which was the a high efficiency ICU ventilator before the 1960s. We really had really no, the modern idea of a ventilator hadn't really been developed. People had bellows and kind of crude rudimentary ventilators that could keep people alive for a very short period of time or during an operation, but they weren't really sophisticated in terms of long-term ventilator support. So as those ventilators in the 1960s began to get developed, um, the use of microchips and computers to really be able to measure and adjust the pressures on a microsecond level really improved ventilator technology. And as ventilator technology improved, patients started surviving in the ICUs. And so a whole new class of patient developed. And these were patients with what we would call now irreversible coma. And uh, they started filling up the ICUs because they were being kept alive on these ventilators. And there was really no precedent or rule or ability to declare them deceased, even if they had complete death of the brain or lack of blood flow to the brain. And so a committee got together and worked out a way to come up with a diagnosis of death that depended only on the irreversible loss of blood flow to the brain. And we that eventually was adopted um, universally in all 50 states and ultimately a national uh, death act was put in place by Congress codifying a brain death diagnosis. 
And so using that brain death diagnosis, surgeons began to utilize these new brain dead donors for heart transplantation. And as that practice became more widely adopted, the use of the donation after circulatory death fell away. Um, But it's interesting to note that switching from what was felt to be the morally acceptable approach to donation, which was the cardiopulmonary diagnosis of death, to this brain death created a huge stir. And, um, And there were a lot of legal cases around the use of brain death as a diagnosis of death in the early days. Um, Ultimately, it became widely adopted and really the ethical issues around this have kind of faded. Um, But now that we're introducing that original idea of circulatory death, people are up in arms about changing from brain death to circulatory death. So it's an interesting full circle uh, ethical loop. Um, this is just the Uniter- Uniform Determination of Death Act and uh, as it was adopted across the country. So what does that do? Once we have a brain death diagnosis, we change that picture that we were talking about before, and we eliminate that first 20 to 40 minutes of warm ischemia. Now the decision to transplant is moved over to right before the heart is flushed and explanted, and you're really only dealing with this cold ischemic injury. And eliminating that, we see a marked improvement in transplant outcomes over the next 20 years. Um, Transplant outcomes go from abysmal to, you know, a five-year survival around 70%. This is still back in the early 90s, so things have changed quite a bit since then too, but a remarkable improvement in outcomes over that period. And then a new drug was identified called cyclosporin, and that changed everything. Suddenly, we had an immune modulator that was highly effective and much more focused on the T cells that we really worry about in transplantation and a much finer sort of surgical instrument on how we immunosuppress our patients. And what we see is that as cyclosporin is adopted by the FDA in 1984, there is a massive increase in the number of heart transplants performed around the world, really. The green is the United States, so there's a huge increase in the U.S., but also uh, around the world, going from around 500 transplants a year up to about 5,000 transplants, so a tenfold increase in heart transplantation over just a few years. However, what you see just past 1990 or so is a completely flat curve. The next 30 years, there's essentially no growth in heart transplantation, and we'll talk more about why that is in just a second. But after that first uh, big bump, after the introduction of cyclosporin, We see the outcomes in transplant continue to improve in the more recent uh, era, where now we're seeing 12 to 15-year, 50% survival in transplantation. And in some of the most recent data, where the lines look like we're going to be looking at probably more like 16 to 17-year 
uh, 50% survival in heart transplantation, which is really remarkable uh, improvements over time. And that doesn't mean, and some of these patients are living, you know, 30, 40 years. Uh, it's not a time bomb going off. It's more um, just attrition of the entire group. So despite the fact that the transplant numbers have been flat for 30 years, the population growth has not stayed flat. We know that the population is expanding exponentially, that the population is aging and aging it at a rapid rate. So a larger and larger percentage of the population is over 65. And we also know that as the population ages, the incidence of heart failure goes up. And so you have these two forces of expanding the aging population and expanding the percent of patients being diagnosed with heart failure. So the number of heart failure patients uh, out there is going up dramatically. At the same time, the number of standard criteria donors, which is in this lower left panel, continues to decline over time. And so the number of patients sitting on the wait list every year over year over year continues to go up. And so we see our wait lists getting longer and longer and patients sitting on the transplant wait list for longer and longer periods of time. So this is what the world kind of used to look like. <laughs> and uh, this is more what it looks like today. So where have all the donors gone? We know that the suicide rate in the United States has come down over the last 30 years. It can come down more, but it has come down dramatically. The murder rate since 1970 has been coming down. The number of motorcycle deaths has been coming down. And the number of automobile deaths per mile driven has come down exponentially. Um, the, the blue line on the right shows the number of miles driven per year has continued to go up. Uh, and despite that, the number of annual deaths uh, in automobile accidents has um, is come dramatically down. And this was these were the major sources of our organ donors, or at least our standard criteria organ donors. And as those populations and those numbers of donors have gone down and down and down, we've had to do things to try to maintain the numbers of transplants that we've been able to do. And to do that, we've dipped into what we call the expanded criteria donors. So these are donors that have some issue that we would have in the earlier days of transplant not used. These donors would have just been passed over for heart transplantation. And so donors over 50, donors with any kind of chest trauma, um, a donor that had had CPR, a donor that had had diabetes or ever smoked um, or ever used any kind of illicit drugs. Um, these would all be donors that we would have shied away from before about 1995. In the early 2000s, we started looking at these donors because as the donor pool got smaller and smaller and our recipient lists got longer and longer, we, we needed to expand how we were using our donor pool. And studies were done to look at each of these issues independently and whether they contributed to poor outcomes in transplantation. And as we looked at each one, and as they were kind of crossed off the list as not, not negatively impacting recipient outcomes, then they became 
more commonly used. I would say even today, people will shy away from some of these donors. Um, but if you are really looking at the data, you can see that most of all of these are uh, acceptable donors and can have perfectly good outcomes um, when used thoughtfully, meaning, you know, you don't want to have 10 negative things with the donor organ, but one or two of these things can be used without any uh, fear and the donors do really well and the recipients do really well. And so using these expanded criteria donors, we've been able to maintain the transplant volumes. Um, we've also looked at using hepatitis C positive donors, uh, the introduction of highly active antivirals uh, about seven or eight years ago, really changed the face of hep C treatment um, for hepatitis. It's highly effective with cure rates in the 95 to 99% rate. We started looking at using donors that had hepatitis C and transplanting these hearts into recipients that did not have hepatitis C. And what we found was we had even better results uh, in terms of cure rates in that scenario, probably because of the very, very, very tiny inoculum that the recipients receive from the organ, from the heart, um, because the seed of hep the hepatitis infection primarily is seated in the liver. Um, in the heart, there's a very small amount. Once all the blood is washed out, a very, very small inoculum that is carried with the heart. And we're able to start treatment right after transplant. And in just four weeks of uh, taking one extra pill a day, um, patients are cleared of the virus. Um, and they don't really have to be cured of hepatitis because they never really get uh, hepatitis infection in the liver or inflammation of the liver uh, related to the hepatitis virus. Uh, but we're able to er eradicate the virus before that happens. And these lines on the right just show the time to viral clearance on all the patients in this trial had complete clearance uh, before three weeks at about two and a half weeks. Uh, we went ahead with a full four-week course of, of treatment. This was a very uh, compelling study. And since then, we have been using uh, hep C positive uh, hearts and lungs for transplantation. And in the last, uh, now it's been over 400 heart and lung transplants in the United States that have been performed with hep C positive uh, donors into hep C negative recipients. And to date, there has not been a single report of a treatment failure. So uh, theoretically, there will be at some point, but to date, there, hadn't, there hasn't been one. So that's been a really successful program. But it's a small number of additional organs. So we've done other things to try to expand the donor pool, like expand the amount of ischemic time that we'll tolerate. So how long the heart can be out of a body before it has to be you know, sewn in and reperfused. We've pushed that barrier uh, as times have gone longer and longer and longer over the years. There are some limitations to cold storage. What we know is that every hour that the heart is out of the body, the outcome of the recipient is impacted. Um, and we know that survival uh, decreases with each uh, additional uh, hour that the, that the heart is out of the body. Now, the decrement is small. The this, you know, the x-axis starts at 70 here. So it's, we're really only talking about a few percentage points with each uh, increment in time. 
but there's definitely an impact. And the typical rule that most programs follow is about four hours for a standard heart is kind of the limit you want to shoot for. Um, and really young donors or donors that are, you know, really no comorbidities, you can push that time maybe up to five or six hours, but that's kind of the absolute limit. So some new technology came out. Uh, it was essentially a pump, which we've we've had for a long time, lots of pumps, but a pump with a whole system that is very compact and uh, an ability to, to be mobile. This allows us to pump oxygenated blood into a heart's uh, coronary arteries and allow that heart to wake up and stay warm and beating for the whole period of assessment and transportation. And that has allowed us to completely change the preservation phase of transplant. And this is kind of what a heart looks like. This is exactly what a heart looks like on the um, pump where blood is being pumped into the aortic root and keeping the heart beating. Uh, the back of the, you're looking at the back of the heart. This is the left atrium that's open and there's a tube in there draining blood out of the left atrium. Uh, so the heart is actually empty in the sense that there's no blood being ejected out of the heart. Um, all the blood going into the aortic root is going down into the coronaries and coming out uh, through the coronary sinus on the right side of the heart and then being returned to the pump and the oxygenator. So this keeps the heart beating and well perfused and warm. And we measure the lactate coming out of the heart. And that's how we know that the heart's doing well. And we can measure the pressures that the heart is seeing. Um, we can measure the um, amount of pressure in the coronary arteries. And we can also uh, visually assess the heart as it is on the pump. And this is kind of how it looks being transported around. Blood, the first thing in a recovery is that blood is removed from the donor and then filled into this reservoir under the machine. And then once the heart is out of the donor, it gets a cannula here into the aorta and then a cannula into the main pulmonary artery. Um, and that gets tied in place. And then the heart gets put on the pump here. And so you see the blood coming down and filling the aorta and it gets connected and then blood draining back that the dark blood coming out is coming from the right side of the heart back into the pump to get reoxygenated and comes back bright red to the aortic root. And so that's how it looks right before it gets transported back to the hospital. And this is actually one of my partners on one of our first cases, bringing the heart back uh, from an organ recovery. So we did a lot of work. Uh, there were multiple studies performed to prove or try to prove that this uh, was a safe system for doing uh, organ recoveries. The first four, the PROTECT and PROCEED trials, were looking at standard donors and just showing that you could put standard donors on the system and, and they would perform uh, as they were supposed to um, compared to hearts that were stored on ice. And then the 
Berlin and um, Harefield UK experience and the Australian experience all looked at the use of extended criteria donors. So donors that were either very far away, so the hearts are going to stay on the machine a long time, or hearts that had some other problem that we wanted to improve the perfusion and protection of the myocardium on. And so this would be things like a thicker heart from a donor that maybe had some hypertension or a heart that was from an older donor that needed a little better preservation. And all those trials helped pave the way for the EXPAND trial, uh, which was a U.S. trial, a big, actually big for this kind of trial, about 300 participants, showing that the expanded criteria donors could be utilized uh, to expand the donor pool safely. So they took donors that were um, outside of the usual criteria that we would accept for transplant. So most of the donors would probably have been discarded and not used, uh, or the hearts from the donors would have been discarded and not used. And so these were hearts that were, for the most part, being um, brought back into the donor pool and expanding the donor pool. And what we found in the EXPAND trial was that uh, the donors did as well as uh, the standard criteria donors. And so um, the technology ultimately was approved for use in organ recovery. And this just shows you some of the cases that I did where the red lines would be the four and six hour absolute limits for cold ischemic time or our hearts that were put on ice. And the blue lines extending beyond that to show the time on these hearts that we went way over those uh, barriers. And so we were able to go get hearts from across the country and safely transplant them. So that was exciting. So we had two decades of stability. And then with all of this additional effort, we got a little tick there at the end, pushing up our, our transplants uh, just a little notch. And in the last couple of years, it's been flat again at that, you know, about 55, 5,700 mark. We did a little better, but we really didn't change the tide of transplant. So what if instead of taking away that warm ischemic injury, or when we use the, what happens when we use the pump is instead of the warm ischemic injury, we take away this big chunk of cold ischemic injury. And so what can we do now to really alter transplant in a more profound way? What can we do to really increase uh, the number of organs in a way that really impacts meaningfully the number of transplants we can perform? So we started looking again at those cardio donation after cardiopulmonary death patients, the DCD donors. And the potential suitability for transplant, when we looked at those donors, if we just looked at the, the other characteristics of the donor, besides the fact that they were going to be DCD versus brain dead, and we figured that very conservatively, somewhere between 12 and 18% or 20% of those DCD donors would be good heart donors. And when we look at DCD volumes in the US, because DCD organs are used for liver and kidney pretty routinely and sometimes for lungs, but not at all for hearts. Over the last 
two decades, the number of DCDs done in the United States has been going up and up and up. And as of 2022, it looks like we'll get well over 4,500 uh, DCD donors uh, in the U.S. And the number is still going up. We haven't plateaued yet. And so when you start thinking very conservatively, 20% of those, that's almost another 1,000 heart transplant that might be done. And if we're only doing about 3,500 heart transplants in the United States a year, we're really talking about a 30% increase in the number of patients that could be treated uh, with advanced heart failure. And that would be a momentous change in the way we manage heart failure and treat heart failure patients in the United States. In addition, when we look at the variation across the United States in the utilization of DCD donors, we see that there's a huge amount of variation. And what that tells us is that there's a lot more we can do to increase the use of DCD donors all around the country. Um, if every state in the, in the union were utilizing DCD donors at a high rate, like the dark states on this map, uh, then the number of donors overall would continue, would go up dramatically. We might be getting into the you know, seven, 8,000 DCD donors a year range, which would mean for us another 2,000 hearts, which would be then maybe a 66% increase in the number of heart transplants. So doing DCD heart transplant using the ex vivo perfusion system changes again, the kind of pattern we see. So the very top line is that original DCD, like Darlene Darval back in 1967, they had a warm ischemic time and then a cold ischemic time and all of that, you had to decide to transplant before any of that injury happened. And then we had the brain dead period where we don't make the, we had to eliminate that warm ischemic period. And so now it's all perfused up to the moment of procurement. Then you make your decision for transplant then you have your cold static storage period and then transplant the organ. And with this newest model, DCD with the ex vivo perfusion machine, we have again, a warm ischemic period. So back to the original DCD model where we have a warm ischemic period, but then instead of following that with cold storage injury, the heart is warm and well perfused. And so you eliminate that. And then you don't have to make your decision for transplant until the very end, right when the donor organ comes into the operating room and the recipients on the table, you can have all that time to assess the organ, make sure you're happy with its performance, and then make a decision to move forward. So it helps you by eliminating cold ischemic time and, and extending the safety window which in which an organ can be transplanted, and also moving that decision to transplant closer to the patient that you're treating, uh, which increases the safety in general. So lots of exciting things. All of this started really in uh, the, with the DCD work, uh, started in Sydney, Australia, uh, where they did the first ex vivo perfusion DCD heart transplant um, and had a great success and a lot of fanfare and this is uh, 
I, there's a friend of mine who did that first transplant, sent me the photos. This was the heart immediately going on the pump on the left. And see, it's kind of sluggish. It's a little blue. It didn't look real great. But after a few hours on the machine, the heart was beating robustly. It had a good red uh, tone. The color had come back. The coronaries were full. They looked great. And then this is the last picture on the right is the heart in the recipient after coming off bypass. And you can see it's robust and it's beating uh, with vigor uh, and looks great. So that was a very successful transplant. This allows, you know, as we said, more functional assessment. So more opportunity for extended criteria donors and DCD donors. This is a graph of the Australian experience after, after they had done um, about 25 of these DCD transplants and then followed them for four years after transplant. What they found was that their DCD patients actually had better survival than their standard criteria brain dead donors, uh, donor recipients of brain dead donors. And so that was a pretty impressive outcome for the first go at DCD transplant. That was followed up by the group at Cambridge at Papworth, and they um, did a similar study looking at DCD versus DBD patients. And in their two-year follow-up, they found really no difference in survival. So the DCDs did as well as their brain-dead donor population. This is one of our first DCDs in the U.S., and you can see uh, the heart beating nicely. It's nice and relaxed. It's got a good color. Um, we're very happy with how the heart's doing here. And this is the heart after transplant. Again, you can see beating robustly. It looks great, uh, and the donors and the recipients doing really well. And so, uh, DCD heart transplant really has a great opportunity to increase our transplantability. But we don't want to do it just based on how the heart looks. We want to look at the data. And when we look at the U.S. trial, which just finished about a year ago, and so we are just now, this month, getting the data, which shows us that when we look at our one-year survival in our DCD patients Compared to our brain-dead patients in blue, the survival was very similar to what the Australians saw with uh, DCD and ex vivo perfusion uh, donor hearts doing better than our standard uh, brain-dead donor recipients. So improving outcomes is always something we're striving for and to see not only expansion of the donor pool, but being able to do it with potentially better survival. Um, or at least as good survival, is really exciting and something uh, that we're a big proponent of. So just to wrap things up, one other way that we're hoping to do DCD and starting to do DCD in the United States is with another technology besides the ex vivo perfusion. uh, And this is called normothermic regional perfusion. This is taking a little different approach to a similar idea where the heart, instead of cutting it out quickly out of the donor and putting it on a pump outside the body, we put the donor on a pump called ECMO or extracorporeal membrane oxygenator support, 
or you could put them on a cardiopulmonary bypass circuit like you do heart surgery with. Um, and on one of these pumps, the blood is circulated and oxygenated inside the donor and blood is only allowed to flow to the areas of the donor that are of interest. So to the heart and lungs um, and the liver and kidneys, or if just the liver and kidneys were going, it would just be flowing to the abdominal viscera. And that's what makes it regional perfusion. So you isolate the circulation to the organs of interest and flow blood to those organs and allow them to be warm and well perfused in the donor. And then once uh, the circulation is stable, and the heart recovers from the injury, it starts beating again, um, looks good, it's pumping, it's happy. Then you can start ventilating the lungs and you can actually wean off the pump and let the heart support the other organs. So the heart, the beating heart would be pumping blood to the lungs and the liver and the kidneys, keeping them well perfused um, and demonstrating that the heart can support the circulation to all of those organs, which is probably the best test that we could have that a heart's going to perform well. And then the heart can be arrested in a controlled fashion um, at your leisure and taken back to the program uh, for implant in the recipient. And so this normothermic regional perfusion is gaining popularity um, as another technique to do DCD heart recoveries. The um, Probably single, two biggest advantages, I should say, not single, the two biggest advantages of potential advantages of normothermic regional perfusion over the ex vivo model. Um, one is that it supports all of the organs. So instead of just supporting the heart, like the ex vivo heart machine does, uh, you support the lungs, the liver, the kidneys, and the pancreas uh, in addition. And that allows for the cost of one pump uh, all of these organs to be supported. We do have ex vivo organ perfusion machines for the lungs and for the liver and for the kidneys. And so you could do a separate pump for each of the organs, but then your the cost of each of those is dramatically increased versus having a single pump that can support all of them um, in one go. So that's one, is that it's a huge cost savings to do NRP over ex vivo perfusion, um, and that you perfuse all of the organs in a controlled fashion, uh, thereby hopefully increasing the performance of the abdominal organs and the lungs along with the heart. Um, so we, we don't yet have a study to show us that uh, that that is in fact what's happening, that normothermic regional perfusion provides better um, abdominal visceral organ recovery and function. But anecdotally, the early reports are that, that that is in fact what's happening. And so I'll be excited to see a study put together in the near future uh, to demonstrate that more clearly. I think that's my last slide. Um, and I can kind of back out of my uh, talk and see if there are any questions that have come up along the way. Thanks very much, Dr. Smith, for that really uh, um, great talk. And um, I learned a lot while listening to you. So I'm, I'm sure that everyone who's listening um, did. You know, I had a few questions for you, if, if that's OK. Of course. You know, you spoke about um, brain dead donors and 
um, the fact that they're on these ventilators for a period of time in the ICU. <clears throat> and as an abdominal transplant surgeon, I know that um, allocating all of these organs to different um, centers is time consuming. And these individuals are kind of on the ventilator for a, a period of time once brain death is known about. Um, and it's interesting to me that the DCD um, hearts are potentially working as well, if not better than the brain dead donors. Do you think that there's anything in that time period um, when the donor is brain dead that occurs that could possibly be um, detrimental to the heart that could be um, uh, impacting the long-term function of it as opposed to the DCD where the demise is so quick and, and the physiology is pretty much normal up until that point. Yeah. Well, I think that's definitely true. I think we have a long history of actually literature demonstrating that the brain death is uh, detrimental, not just to the heart, but to the whole body um, based for lots of reasons, but primarily from what's called the cytokine storm that occurs in the process of brain death. There's a huge release of catecholamines, which are uh, like epinephrine and norepinephrine uh, that uh, are released from the body as the, as the brain um, goes, gets um, starved of oxygen and the perfusion to the brain decreases. The body tries to push more blood to the brain. And the only real way the body can do that is by ramping up the catecholamine super high. These are like stress, stress induced. Uh, right. It's like a stress response. Exactly. And that catecholamine storm or that massive cytokine release um, has a, a very negative impact on cardiac function. Um, we know that if we beta block donors that are in the early phases of brain death progression or progressing into brain death, that we block that cytokine storm and we can preserve LV function. Now, most donors, as they go through that L catecholamine storm and, and almost all donors will have a dip in their LV function, but most donors recover that LV function after a few days. So after 48 hours or so, generally the heart gets back to normal, but a percentage of hearts are damaged by that process and don't recover or they recover partially. And so you have a donor with a moderately low EF, probably related to, to, to the cytokine storm that doesn't completely recover. And you're left, you know, if the hearts don't recover and the ejection fraction or the LV function is really poor, it's pretty easy. You don't use the heart, but, um, if it's in this really gray zone where it's a little bit low and you're not sure, it can be really challenging because you want to, to use every organ you can. So I do think um, in that brain death period, there are some detrimental things happening um, that, that negatively impact the function of the heart or its ability to recover. Um, and so that may be part of the reason that we see improved outcomes with, um, with the DCD organs. The um, 
And the other question I had for you that's probably on the minds of most people who have been watching the news and thinking about expanding the donor pool is this uh, incredible story that came out of the University of Maryland where um, they performed a um, xenotransplant, which is across species, a pig heart um, was transplanted into a individual who subsequently um, unfortunately passed. Um, what, uh, you know, the, the heart is a, doesn't necessarily seem like the best place to start, but is actually, um, though it's incredibly important, functions as a pump and, um, and is a great place potentially to start in terms of this type of transplant. Now, can you just tell me or, you know, the, the listeners a little bit about what the cardiac community um, uh, you know, how far are we away from this becoming a reality and what is the, you know, what, what is this, the, the sort of updates on potential xenotransplantation in um, becoming a reality um, to expand the donor pool? Sure. Well, <laughs> Dr. Shumway at Stanford used to always, uh, was famous for saying that, uh, Xenotransplantation was the future of heart transplantation and always would be, meaning he didn't think we were ever going to get there. Um, I think, and I, I think most of the people I talk with about this, and I've talked to the folks that did that in Maryland, you know, I think we're closer today than we've ever been. I certainly think some of the alpha-gal knockout pigs are really an interesting approach to um, getting us closer to xenotransplantation. I think a lot of the gene silencing uh, technology for HLA silencing is exciting uh, that's going on right now. Um, and I think ironically, or not ironically, uh, interestingly, you know, the ex vivo organ platforms provide a mechanism for delivering some of the gene therapies uh, for HLA silencing that we didn't have a few years ago. So I think, you know, not just the alpha gal stuff that they were doing in Maryland, um, but also probably something in that combines those types of approaches, um, a basic knockout model um, pig that reduces antigenicity and then a reduction in HLA surface molecules all would, you know, have to come together to make an organ, a, a, a xenograft really acceptable to a recipient immune system. So, I mean, I can see a theoretical path, um, but I would guess that we're still 20 plus years from seeing a routine xenotransplant uh, model out there in clinical practice. Um, this, you know, there are a lot of hurdles in this Maryland transplant. Uh, you know, this was um, clearly an experimental move. The donor, I mean, the uh, recipient for that transplant was not a transplant candidate. So he was not eligible for transplant. And this was, he signed up for a, for a research effort to try to do this, um, knowing that he would have very little to no benefit from the transplant 
Um, and he died a few days uh, after transplant, unfortunately. Um, but I think that was not unexpected. And I think the patient knew that that's what was going to probably happen. Very similar to Mr. Wyskansky back in 1967, who volunteered to be the first heart transplant recipient human to human. Um, so we're making strides. I mean, we, we hadn't done a non-human allograft, I think, uh, since 1984 in the United States with baby Faye. Um, and so it had been a long time since we'd attempted a xenograft uh, for the heart. Uh, so I think, you know, the fact that we're back in the game a little bit is uh, an encouraging sign. But I think for the for the near future, for the foreseeable future, for my career, I think we'll be doing human to human transplants. Uh, well, you know, I just wanted to thank you again for for joining us, um, for sharing your thoughts about what's going on now and the excitement, you know, exciting future. One last question before we end. Um, you know, we speak about how important it is in terms of increasing this curve uh, that you said has been flattened for 15 years. And um, can you give us a little insight into what that gap looks like? You know, how many people are dying waiting for a heart transplant and how far, how, how much, how many more do we need to, how many more organs do we need to um to to adequately care for those individuals who are on the transplant waiting list sure so as with any transplant or, or any organ you know there are a number of patients that are on the wait list that never make it to transplant that die on the wait list every year um in hearts in trans heart transplant that number is you know right around nine to ten percent um, and so if we have about 40, you know, 3,500 to 4,000 transplants and there's, you know, there are probably 400 or so people dying each year on the wait list. However, I don't think that's the real gap. I think the real gap are the patients that never make it on the list because we have such a limited supply of organs. And, you know, we have these selection committees that decide who gets listed for transplant and the criteria for who can get listed for a transplant. And those can be pretty strict and I think um, can be restrictive in terms of who could get a transplant. There are patients out there who could be helped by transplant that because of things like insurance and because of things like, um, you know, not having enough social support or um, not, you know, having had cancer or in the recent past, things that, you know, they would still benefit from transplant, but we want to be good stewards of the few organs that we have. And so we concentrate those organs on the people we think will do the best with transplant. So I think the real gap is if we can grow the number of organs that we have available then we can treat more people that are currently not offered transplant. Um, and I think when we look at those numbers, there are over 5 million people living with heart failure in the, or 5 million people diagnosed with heart failure in the United States every year. 
And there are over 250,000 that die of advanced heart failure every year. And so that's the pool of patients. And we're only transplanting about 4,000 of them. So we needed a lot more donors. <laughs> but, uh, but certainly we could help a much bigger chunk of them yeah. uh, if we had more organs. Well, it's, um, you know, on that humbling thought, you know, um, we appreciate everything that you're doing to bridge that gap, to reduce um, disparities and try to make uh, transplant a more uh, viable option for more individuals. And really thank you for taking the time to speak with us tonight. That was my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. All right. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.